Welcome to Word on the Street, a weekly podcast from Barclays UK, where our experts help ordinary investors make sense of the latest news and events impacting the world's financial markets. This week, we look at whether world events have changed our long-term investment views and where we think returns may be heading in the next 10 to 20 years, with Sarah Gresty, Head of Investments, and Will Hobbs, Chief Investment Officer. If you are new to investing, want to learn more about investing, or want tips on how to manage your long-term financial plans, check out our sister podcast channel, Money Plan, available on Apple, Spotify and SoundCloud. Welcome to another week of Word on the Street. This week, it's just Will and I talking about a few things. First, there's been yet another turbulent week to try and digest. I guess my main interest here in amongst all sorts of data points and developments is what has changed in terms of our views of the world. And then there are also a few client questions to try and tackle on a common theme. The longer term returns from investing in stocks, some perspective on the post-war period for investors, and any hints on where those returns might be heading in the next 10, 20 years. Hello, Sarah. Uh, yes, lots of thoughts as always. Um, hello, everybody. Welcome to another week, I guess. And it's been it, it's been a roller coaster. That's an overused word at the moment, isn't it? In in life and in markets. But I, I think, like you said, there's been a lot going on this week. I mean, one of the things that you just mentioned there, those kind of mega US retailers, and, and there's a debate going on in markets at the moment is how how do I protect myself from inflation? Are there types of companies that I can buy um, that make me more resilient if the world is going to have more inflation? And the common theme that gets talked about here a lot is kind of pricing power. This idea that companies, there are certain types of companies or certain industries where they are just more able for one reason or another, or loads of different reasons, to be able to pass on rising input costs onto their end consumer. And therefore, they're able to kind of preserve profitability and margins in amongst a more inflationary environment. The problem, there's always a problem, isn't there? Nothing's for free in this world, but is that it's many, there's significant overlap in that section section of the market, stocks with pricing power, with the section of the market that is also uh, a little bit wobbly at the moment because of rising discount rates. I'll explain what I mean. You know, real interest rates have been rising really sharply since March, and that is changing the valuation story on a part of market. So it's really deciding when you're thinking about these stocks, which part is going to dominate? Is it going to be you know the pricing power element where the companies are preserving margins, or is it going to be the valuation element? where rising real interest rates are putting those valuations under pressure. The other points to make just on, you know, the other stuff that's been going on, I think the team thinks that the US economy really does retain a lot of momentum at the moment. We've said before, you know, that the the economy is providing nearly two job vacancies for every person looking for work at the moment. That is a smoking hot labour market, as we've said. And that is really the big question of the moment, or one of the big questions at the moment, is how far will central banks, the Federal Reserve in the US, the Bank of England in the UK, have to raise rates in order to cool uh, you know, aggregate demand, to re-plug it into aggregate supply so it ceases to you know, swamp it and create this inflation. And, you know, and like I said, you mentioned recession there as well. And one of the things that's happening at the moment is that you're seeing something called a derating in parts of the market. So earnings multiples, as in the amount of pounds you'll pay for pounds, dollars or euros that you'll pay for one dollar, euro or pound of that company's earnings. That has been falling as investors have been anticipating a decline in earnings, i.e., you know, a recession or a slowdown. And, and, and the question is, you know, have they done enough? Have investors anticipated correctly um, this earnings slowdown, or is it going to be bigger or smaller than than we're currently uh, expecting? Uh, and you're seeing at the moment, you know, if you're looking at consensus forecasts for one year out 
growth and one year out inflation, they're kind of going or they have been going the wrong way uh, for each other. So, you know, one year out expected inflation has been going up and one year expected growth has been going down a bit. So it's, uh, I, I say it again, I say it every week, it's an enormously complicated uh, investing world out there at the moment. Okay, well, that makes sense. So you said it's complicated, but are you going to give me a confidence inflation forecast? <laughs> I always, I always hide behind complicated. <laughs> you know that. No, I'm not going to give you a confident inflation forecast. You know, uh, you know well, Sarah. I mean, I, I think we would reiterate the saying that only the fools are confident. You know, if you hear someone confidently tell you uh, what inflation is going to be next year in any geography, um, you should tune out and listen to someone else. There's just not that certainty. I mean, what we are, you know, there's a number of sort of things that people are looking at at the moment. So in the US, one of the things that people are watching with a little bit of angst is that you're starting to see some of those kind of dreaded or some evidence of the dreaded kind of wage price spiral where employee compensation chases economy-wide prices higher. You know, that's in, only in parts of the market in, in lower income segments, actually. So, you know, you can see why the central bankers are getting busy. And, and you know, our current sort of suspicion is that they will be you know, successful in bringing inflation to heel. There are some serious kind of uh, forces bringing inflation down over coming quarters in the US in particular. It's a more complicated story in Europe and the UK. Actually, as you can see, I mean, the Bank of England uh, is having real trouble sort of communicating a narrative around, you know, what it's going to do next and how many rate rises are coming, or at least trying to communicate a consistent one. I don't think that's necessarily the Bank of England's fault. It's just a very, very, very difficult backdrop for uh, for monetary policy, among many other things. Okay, thanks, Will. So maybe let's look at history. So I saw you wrote an article on request covering the post-war experience of investing in stocks. What are the major lessons you would take from that period in history? I'm glad you said it was a customer, a customer request. So, so it was, yeah, it wasn't my initiative. I was actually asked to write this, so to, to go down the history lane as usual. But yeah, I mean, I, I think there's a couple of things that you can say. I mean, the first thing, and this is something my old boss used to say all the time, you know, when someone said the foremost dangerous words are in, in investing are, oh, it's different this time. Well, he would always argue against that because he would say, actually, it's different every time, sometimes subtly, sometimes profoundly. Um, but that's really highlighted when you look in detail at, you know, not just the line chart of the post-war experience of, um, of of investing in stocks, which, you know, if, you, if you're looking at it in a log scale, it just looks incredibly attractive. You know, it's, it's, it's a long-term rising trend uh, with a few nasty blips in it. But that's, that's something, the first point would be that it is different uh, every time and the detailed context matters when you're thinking about valuations in history. The other thing, I mean, if you look at it sort of broadly, there's three major bull runs during that period, i.e. periods of sort of rising rising stock markets, rising stocks and rising valuation. They're driven by a variety of things, but the primary driver, and this is a kind of boring, back to the sort of same old point, which is that the primary driver of long-term returns is still kind of innovation and how we assimilate those innovations into everyday life and make make our, you know, basically for a given set of inputs, we increasingly make a larger, larger amount of outputs. And that's the story really that drives. But each bull cycle is somewhat different. You know, the starting point is often quite important. You know, you can find depressed, uh, you know, and that's one of the things that people are a little bit gloomier about today, which is that, you know, your starting point relative to previous sort of cycles or, you know, new new regimes, it is one of quite high margins, quite high valuations and quite low interest rates. Those three things are sort of, you know, as a starting point, they're not terribly auspicious uh, relative to, say, 2009, when you started with a you know, really, really low 
profitability. So you only had, you know, the only way was up and you had higher interest rates, which meant that, you know, there was some scope for further downward trend in interest rates, supporting valuations and other things. But yeah, that is not the case this time around. But all is not despair, all the same, like I say, because there's still that sort of technological productivity driver uh, to long-term returns, but you're not going to get that much help by the looks of things from margins and uh, and valuations on a sort of 10, 20 year view. Well, do you see any similarities with the stagflation purgatory, the global economy and capital markets endured in the 1970s with today? Uh, yeah, I mean, this is an, an oft sort of talked about story. I think there's, there's a number of things that are very different. I think that's the most important thing to focus on. There are some sort of superficial similarities, but one of the differences is the kind of policymaking context. So then, you know, independent central banks were not universal in any way. I think the Bank of England was still tethered to the government at that stage. And the Federal Reserve, you know, its, its degree of independence is often illustrated by this story about how President Johnson dragged the then Fed chair down to his ranch in Texas, William McChesney Martin, and literally apparently physically pushed him around the room telling him to cut interest rates. You know, his boys were dying in the mud. And, uh, you know, he had all sorts of other sort of political things to sort of, you know, to worry about. And he felt that raising interest rates was unpatriotic, all sorts of other stuff like that. So that that, that sort of is going to symbolise that some of the sort of policy making context was quite unfavourable in the sort of late, that was 65 actually, but through the 70s, you find that policy goes in the wrong direction. Quite often, it's not leaning against the inflationary impulse. And that creates this problem where you get customers and businesses cease to believe in the central bank as an inflation fighting force. You see the same contemporary Turkey as it goes. Um, And that's really important is those inflation expectations. So any sign that they are what's called de-anchoring, i.e. consumers and businesses are losing that faith in the central bank and inflation expectations are drifting higher. That's something that's not quite the same as what we saw in 19, uh, the 1970s. There was also a far higher degree of organized labor that was, you know, seen as um, instrumental during that period in terms of the inflation side of things. At the end of that period, I think was quite interesting. So, you know, the early 80s, the beginning of the next bull market, you know, that is when you had this thing, you know, the famous event in central banking circles anyway, the, the so-called Volcker shock. Paul Volcker, this legendary central banker, came along, you know, to, to battle inflation, bring it back to heel, bring it to, to behave itself again. And he raised his central bank raised uh, interest rates to 20% in the US. Um, and that was really, you know, 1980, that was, I think, 1980. I can't remember, someone will be able to correct me. Uh, but by 1982, you'd really seen a kind of peak in inflation. And that's when you're starting to see the next bull run start. And it was really founded on that, that improving context, because you found that interest rates had a long way to fall from that point. Inflation really didn't raise its ugly head materially um, again until today. And it was really about re-establishing the credibility of the central banks. Now, to a, to a much smaller scale, you know, this is kind of what's going on at the moment. Is central banks are looking at inflation expectations and they're saying, have we still got credibility? The problem that they have is that inflation expectations are not easily accurately measured. So they're kind of guessing. Um, and they're looking at a range of stuff and worrying a little bit, like, is inflation seeping into our collective consciousness? And that's why you're seeing such incredible incredible action from the central banks at the moment. But the final point, I think, really, though, is that, you know, the major point amongst all of this, you know, the long term, and I've already said it already, but it's the major driving force behind earnings over time is productivity growth. And so, again, it gets back to that point. You know, lots of people just done a big client event just now. And, you know, a lot of the questions were about, you know, is now a good time? It feels like a horrible time to get invested. The news is horrible. Uh, remember, you know, try and sort of don't get too worried about sort of rubbernacking the 
potential accidents in the road ahead. The key is to focus on the medium-term prospect for productivity. Tune out all of the noise of the present because much of that will be, you know, much of that, the things you're worrying about will already be efficiently incorporated into market prices. Not all of it. We think, you know, you can tilt here and there, but most of it. So really the sort of act of getting invested for a five to 10 year period is really just about productivity. Do I think we're going to invent new stuff and get better at using that new stuff? My answer is, you know, predictably somewhat is yes. With lots of study, I believe very strongly that we're entering a potentially a, a new period of productivity growth. But, you know, that that's, you know, that for each person to answer that question to themselves and do the work that gets them to feel comfortable on it. Yeah, thanks, Will. That's, it's always helpful to hear that again. So there does seem to be quite a gap between bull markets. Would you expect this time to be the same with a bull market that only finished as recently as 2020? Yeah, I mean, there's no reason why it would have to be. I mean, that does seem to be the pattern you see in the data that you see this sort of, you know, there's a sort of digestion period afterwards of kind of, uh, you know, dyspepsia, market dyspepsia, and you get all sorts of problems sort of getting in the way. But, you know, I'm not sure that's, you know, there's no reason why it should be. There's no economic reason why that should be the case. You can find that bouts of extreme excess take a while to get over. Banking crises, you know, if you look at the great financial crisis, that tends to come with slower aftermath recovery. But then again, you know, that bull bull market started pretty immediately afterwards. But so there's all sorts of things that can go into that, all sorts of unpredictable things that can go into that sort of that that equation. Like I say, the main question you've got to answer is really just about that productivity growth story. Do you think if we're on the verge of several breakthroughs and, you know, potentially major general purpose technologies and all the stuff that comes with that, is this a time to be on the sidelines? Now, you know, my argument, you know, our argument, self-serving though it sounds, doesn't have to be wrong as a result, is that there are lots of, uh, there is lots of innovative potential in the world at the moment. And that you're already seeing, you know, some of the advances we saw during the pandemic, you know, the messenger RNA technology, the broader application of that will be a hugely potentially productive uh, productivity enhancing event. So there's all sorts of things going on from that perspective, causes for optimism. So I would, like I say, tune out all that noise and focus on that um, that productivity story. Thanks, Phil. I'm going to take this in a slightly weirder direction now, Good. because that leads nicely <laughs> onto the other article I saw you put out this week, which was the link between cousin marriage and productivity growth. Yes. Please explain this one, Brian. Oh, it's weird, isn't it? It's weird. Well, it's basically down to this. There's quite an interesting book, which sort of corresponds to a lot of the reading I've been doing, tragically, on European marriage patterns and their influence on uh, economic growth. There's, there's loads of Dutch academics who've done amazing work on the very different institution of marriage in Europe and what that, what effects that might have had on the institutions and RN individually and individuality and so on. Now, one sort of addition to this kind of academic field recently has been a guy who wrote a book called Weird, and that's an acronym for, I think it's Western Educated Industrialized Rich Democratic. Um, and he's trying to explain, him and his team are trying to explain why on a battery of sort of psychological tests run all over the world, Europeans are incredibly distinct from a number of perspectives from the rest of the world. Individualism, attitude to strangers, attitude to authority, all sorts of aspects like this. 
And his argument, which he plausibly kind of demonstrates, I think, with the statistics as they are, is down to sort of basically a survival strategy of the Catholic, the early Catholic Church. You know, so back in as the fall of the Western Roman Empire is approaching, the Catholic Church's expansion strategy at this stage is in Europe is basically they have to break into clans and kin based societies where polygamy and, and inter- cousin intermarriage has really kind of reinforced those family groups and those are sort of operating groups. And the Catholic Church breaks into these groups by prescribing a very specific marriage pattern, which, you know, they say, you know, monogamy, consent are really important kind of moments. Some people identify this as a, you know, real moment of girl power, essentially a changing uh, moment in the female labor force participation and various other things. And also what that meant is, if you think about it, is that Catholics in Europe at this stage, there was one, a prescription at one stage, you had to look beyond your sixth cousin. I don't even know who my sixth cousins are. So, you know, you really had to move quite far afield. And what that meant was that Europeans couldn't just uh, stay at home and, you know, work out which cousin you're going to marry. You had to move quite far afield. And so that act of moving away from the home created more individualism, but it also left holes to fill in things like, you know, care for the elderly. And so you started to design an institutional context around it. That is one of the sort of reasons or one people, people have made the link between that um, and what follows afterwards, the Reformation, the Industrial Revolution, the Scientific Revolution, um, that those, this guy's point or these guys, this field of academia's point is that those couldn't have happened elsewhere because there's something quite distinct about European. Now, you know, this is not going to be, it's a very careful line to trot this cultural superiority and everything comes with it. That's not the case. We know full well that, you know, the individuality that is sort of common in the Western world has not fared well in the pandemic. You know, it's not a universally positive trait, but it's just trying to explain early economic takeoff that it might be something to latch onto, I guess. Okay. If well, that makes any I, sense, you, I don't know. <laughs> I think given we started with cousin marriage, I think you have explained that pretty well, actually. So thank you, Will. The other point that you've made is we shouldn't be too down on social media. Yes. I read a really good article the other day about the societal terrors of if you ask an algorithm to locate outrage, then outrage is what it will, it will find. And, you know, this whole idea that we are, because of social media, spewing outrage across the world all over the place. And I guess that the point, it would go a little bit back to that sort of previous point, which is that, yes, I mean, there are some sort of quite difficult things associated with social media at the moment, societally and various others. And there's clearly some learnings from a policymaker perspective and how we organize it and who owns it and which bits of it and so on and data, all sorts of thorny issues that we need to work through. But one of the things that I think is quite interesting is that if you look at a previous information revolution, um, sparked this time by the printing press in um, 15th century Europe, you know, what you have is this surge in, you know, the printing press is seen linked directly to this surge in literacy and literate dissent and disagreement uh, in Europe. And it's, you know, the foundation stone of the Reformation, famously. But beyond that, you know, there's some who question that without this information revolution, do you get the scientific revolution and therefore everything good that comes after that? The counterpoints are, you know, can you, you know, is it comparable, the information today with what's going on there? And there are some sort of, you know, there's some commonalities, but there would there would have been, you know, misinformation in the printing era age, plenty of it as well. But the point that some authors seem to sort of drive towards with regards to it is that this act of dissent and public disagreement and being able to have your own views, that it's an important cultural influence into being able to make the most of productivity growth. 
that kind of individualism, that ability to disagree and openly do it, that is maybe an important input. So it's just another side to the, to the story, really. I mean, I, I, like I say, I, I don't really use social media, to be honest. I mean, I'm, I'm very lame on this area. I, I use LinkedIn a little bit, um, as you know. But I think we want to be sort of careful of only looking at the sort of, you know, the neg- potential negative outcomes uh, of this societally, because history says that there are potentially things that we can say about linking kind of free speech, even low quality free speech to kind of future growth outcomes. Um, so, well, well, thank you very much. That was interesting. And unfortunately, we've run out of time now. So I just want to thank you and thank the listeners and join us next week to hear more. All investments can fall as well as rise in value and their past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. This podcast is not a personal investment recommendation.